will never forget what happened to me that night. And I'll never forget what she was wearing. This is a 31-year-old story that's never been told. There is a road out here off of Gainesville where the Gainesville Raceway is located. And it's nothing but backwoods. It's about a 20-minute ride through the woods. The story has changed the entire Tiffany Sessions case. And halfway in, there's a lot of sharp curves. One's a double back. And the woman telling the story? She's a possible witness from 1989. As I'm approaching, a girl shoots out as fast as she can possibly run directly into the front and center of the road. We think this woman might have been the last person besides Paul Rolls to see Tiffany Sessions alive. Don't believe it was I believe it was her. I'm Haley Holloway and this is Shallow Graves. Every time my car tires hit that road now, and it never has been a time I drove down that road, I didn't think about that incident since then. This story starts on February 10th, 1989, the day after Tiffany Sessions disappeared. And the location is still in Alachua County, but it's just outside of Gainesville. It's on an old tree-lined country road that leads to Jacksonville. If you know Gainesville well enough, there aren't that many roads to leave Gainesville on. That's about the only road that's a quiet country road north of Gainesville, period. Terry Williams used to drive this particular road a lot. When she was growing up, it was how she got from her mom's house to her dad's house. But it's also a good way to get from Gainesville to Jacksonville without having to go through the state's most infamous speed trap in a tiny town called Waldo but you had to know it was there. There was nobody out there back then. So when you look at ways to leave Gainesville and you look at where would you go quickly to the woods, but close by, but out, that's the way you would go north without going 301. Terry was 16 when Tiffany Sessions went missing. And the night after the disappearance, Terry, who lived out in the country and hadn't heard any of the news about Tiffany, was driving on that lonely, wooded back road from her dad's house to her mom's house. Was it darker than this? Yes, it was darker. But it wasn't long after dark. So, let's see, it's 6.30 now. I would say by 8, 7.38, maybe. So as I came up on the bridge, I could see that there was a truck on the side of the road and like about right up here. And as I was approaching, I slowed down as I normally do. The road has a couple of hard turns that Terry says were a lot sharper back then. She says they've since been widened out, but it's still shaped like an S. It's a quick turn to the left and then another to the right. As I'm approaching and I'm slowing down just because of the turn is about to happen, I'm going to curve to the left. A girl shoots out as fast as she can possibly run directly into the front and center of the road. And in her face was nothing but pure fear. I must have missed her by inches. I mean, I can't believe I didn't hit her. Was she waving or yelling or? Yeah, she had her arms out there. It was like, waving me to stop. If I hadn't slammed on brakes or slung my car to the left, she was intentionally trying to get me to like stop or I would have hit her. Like 
head on and, and just plowed her over. She was right in the middle of the road. Okay, the details right here are going to be really important later. Terry is driving away from Gainesville on this backcountry road that almost nobody ever uses. Pine trees reach all the way to the sky and cover both sides of the road. It's dark and so far out of town that there are almost no houses, just tons and tons of trees. And as Terry comes up to these turns shaped like an S, she sees a truck on her right-hand side parked just off the shoulder and close to the tree line. That's where the girl comes running from. And that old truck that Terry sees, it's red. This is all happens in a matter of split seconds. The girl flies into the front of my car. I see a man take off into the woods, running into the woods. I slowed down and then kept going because at that point I was afraid. Like, what do I do? And I, I, I to this day feel like, yeah, maybe if I'd have stopped my brakes and opened my door, you know, but what do you do? Because she had seen that man running into the woods, Terry says her first instinct was that this was a couple working together to try and get her to stop her car. And the man was hiding in the woods so that it would just look like a young woman who was alone and needed help. Honestly, my very first instinct was, this is a setup. They're trying to get me. Because my parents always beat that in my head. Do not stop for anybody. Do not, do not, do not. So I was thinking it was a setup. They're trying to get me. He's trying to hide. But it didn't seem right. Something was off, she says. The man seemed older, and the girl seemed fairly close to her age and looked terrified. They didn't match. The size of the man and this little girl did not match. I mean, she wasn't much older than me. I would have said she was my age because she was so, she was petite. She was in baggy clothes. Her hair was a mess, and she had definitely been crying, like, Her face was red, flush red. It's been three decades since that night, and Terry still has the images of that girl in her headlights burned into her memory. All I can remember is bright red sweatpants and very white shoes. I want to say they were like the Reeboks, the old-fashioned traditional Reeboks, but they were crisp, clean, And that's what I saw in my headlights coming right at my car. And I know I remember her hair being down, strawberry blonde. Is there a possibility that you've seen the stories and heard and that's why you remember the red pants? I'm absolutely sure. Because the red stood out so bright in my headlights and coming at me, and her feet coming at me, and that's what I remember. Her feet and how close was she coming to my car And I remember her doing her arms out like this, like, stop, stop, and the fear in her face. I'll never forget the red and the white. And the white was intense, you know. It was her. I believe it was her. The pictures I look at them now, I'm like, it was her. That was her. She's since seen the pictures of Tiffany Sessions a hundred times. But that night, Terry didn't know there was a college student who'd gone missing from her power walk the night before. And Terry, like the rest of Gainesville, had no idea there was a soon-to-be serial killer living amongst them, building their homes, sitting next to them in church, dropping kids off at their schools. And so she drove home, scared and very unsure of what had just happened. I wanted to turn around and go back, like go down the roadways and then turn around and come back and see. 
but I was afraid. I was like, I'll just go home and tell my parents what I saw, you know. So I go home and my mom and my stepdaughter stand in the kitchen and I told them what happened. I don't, you know, I don't know how I expressed myself in their eyes, but I said, this is what just happened to me. Do I need to call the police, you know? And I guess looking back- Terry says her mom and stepdad said no. She didn't need to call the police. And I think it's only fair to acknowledge that there was a lot going on in their house that night. Terry's stepdad had just had surgery, something had gone wrong. Obviously, he was on some kind of pain medication, but they were also going to have to go back to the hospital the next day to redo the surgery. So when their teenage daughter came in the house with this story, I have to think they were at least a little distracted. And Terry, she was barely 16. And when I put myself in her shoes, asking my parents, is this a big deal? Should I call the police or not? And they say no. I don't think I would have called. And she didn't. I guess looking back, I think, well, if your parents would tell you, yes, let's call the police and I'll help you. But they didn't encourage me. I really was just, I guess, looking for that back, you know, looking hindsight. So Terry brushed it off and kind of forgot about what happened until about a week and a half later. She was home from school, the evening news was on, and she heard a report about a missing girl. She was last seen on February 9th wearing red jogging clothes. So I just was listening to it. And when it said the date and they showed her a picture, I was like, wait a minute. My heart was pounding. So I run in the kitchen, I find a calendar to see what the Friday was. Was it the day she was missing? Is this the girl? Well, the date was the 10th. And the date being the 10th is why Terry still didn't call. I want to explain her line of thinking here, but I think you have to think about it through the lens of a 16-year-old. So the news report said this girl had gone missing on February 9th, right? And so Terry's thinking, oh my gosh, could it have been this girl I saw on the road? The description sounds just like her. So she starts working backward in her head. She knew the incident on the road had happened on a Friday when she was driving to her mom's house. So she looked on the calendar to see what that Friday's date had been. But when she found it, Friday had been the 10th, not the 9th, when this news report said the girl had disappeared. I now understand that you don't just kidnap somebody and kill them. I never thought about captivity being held, even 24 hours. I didn't think about that. I just thought if it didn't happen that day, I saw her the day after. So if she went missing yesterday, she's gone. How could have I seen her today? And that's exactly how I thought of it. But it, the description of the pants and stuff made me feel like it was her. And I, I didn't want to, I just was a quiet person. I wouldn't have kept pushing like, hey, we need to call the police, you know? I thought, well, it's not right. It wasn't her. But it's never left me. Ever. That night, not stopping, not calling, it's haunted Terry for 31 years. I talk to her when I come by here. Every time. For years, every time I drive past here, I remember that. There's never a time that I drive by this that I don't think of that moment. Do you regret not coming forward? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but like I've said, I truly did not believe it was her, but it's eaten away at me. 
as what if it was. I said, what if I just call and let them know? So she did. In January of 2012, Terry finally decided to call NICMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. What happened all these years later? What provoked me to call? I don't know. I don't know if maybe I'd seen something, you know, an anniversary thing. I don't know, but I left a message with what seemed like a young person that could care less what I was saying. And I told my story. It had taken 22 years for Terry to get up the courage to call and report what she had seen. And she says no one from NICMEC ever called her back. No one asked her any other questions about what happened that night or made any moves to get more information from her. And so she assumed they either didn't believe her or didn't care. I never heard anything, so I let it go. When I called the missing and exploited children, I thought that was my release of letting it go. But then once again, it's back in my face. I was looking at the paper and I saw where Sheriff Darnell had put a new detective on the case. I started at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office in January of 2013. You know Detective Kevin Allen. He's the current cold case detective at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office who found that entry in Paul Roll's address book, the one that could be about Tiffany Sessions. And just a couple of months after he'd found it, he got a call from Terry. She said, you know, she was tired of holding it in and she wanted to talk about it, so she reached out to me. And uh, we went out with the FBI to that location, and she just broke out crying. She couldn't stop crying for like 10 minutes. She said, I, I so wish that I'd called the police 24 years ago. I, I shouldn't have waited this long. Now, I want to remind you that thousands and thousands of people have called about Tiffany Sessions over the years. And we can probably assume that, even if well-intended, 99.7% of those calls were irrelevant. So I think getting a call from a new witness in 2013, decades after the fact, has to come with at least a little bit of skepticism. But you also have to hear them out, because what if? I said, I'll, I'll go meet with this witness. I'll just, you know, kind of evaluate her to see what it's all about. And if I find her credible, I think we ought to bring her back out to the scene. And you found her credible? I found her to be credible. You know, sometimes you get some witnesses that just want attention and they want to interact with the police to feel important for whatever reason. I didn't get any bad vibe from her at all. We made an arrangement to meet her after work and then uh, to drive her over to the location. And so she kind of pointed out where she had been driving from and where she was going to and the area on the side of the road where she thought she saw a red truck. She pointed out where the roadway turned to the left and to the right. And to me, that just seemed like a good opportunity to interview her. You know, we, she showed us what she had to show us, and then you normally do with many witnesses, you'll say, now tell me again what you remember from back then, and then just let them free associate. And she started to do that. And then this absolute awful sound just started to come out of her. It felt like from her stomach, it sounded like a wolf. And she just started crying hysterically, and she could not stop for several minutes. But anyway, she calmed down eventually, and she said, I've been holding the story in for 25 years, and I think it all just came out at once. Detective Allen and the FBI had Terry tell them her story on several different occasions, and once even had her hypnotized. Each time, her story was consistent, and each time, they dug for more details that could help narrow their investigation. And the pieces really seemed to click. Terry's story had been that she knew what night she'd almost hit the girl on the road because it was the night before her stepdad's second surgery, right? Well, 
As it turns out, Terry's mom had been a schoolteacher, and she kept very detailed calendars. And when Detective Allen asked Terry's mom about the date in question, she pulled out a 24-year-old calendar and showed him an entry that says, Cliff Hospital. Back to hospital, replace knee drain. It's written in the box for February 11th, 1989, the day after Terry's incident. Another piece that fit into the puzzle was the truck Terry had seen. It was red, right? And she was telling Detective Allen about this old red truck in 2013, the year before the sheriff's office told us anything about Paul Rolls, his red Ford Bronco, or a possible connection to Tiffany Sessions. And she said, I didn't really catch the guy that was by the red truck. And we hadn't put out red truck at that point. So that was, that was information. But I interviewed her two or three times, and every time I interviewed her, she was very believable. I've had the same experience with Terry. I find her credible. And so if we take her account as fact here and believe it was Tiffany and Paul she saw that night, it means Tiffany Sessions was alive for at least 24 hours after she disappeared. What happened within that 24 hours, though, we'll probably never know for sure. So Tiffany goes missing on the 9th. Terry almost runs him over on the 10th. Wouldn't it be probable Paul Rolls took her to wherever he was living? Yes. When we brought the canines up for the Beth Foster scene, we also included the two houses that Paul Rolls lived in back then. And we let the dogs go through their yards with negative results. What we do know is that the two victims of Paul's who were found were left right where it's believed he killed them. Linda Fita killed and found in her apartment, and Elizabeth Foster, likely killed in those woods off of Williston Road where her body was found. And if it was Tiffany who ran out into the road that night, she was running and fighting and proving to her kidnapper she could still get away. If Terry's account was of Tiffany and Paul, it's pretty probable that's where he left her, isn't it? because he acted on such quick turns that if Tiffany was trying to run away... Might have killed her fast. Yeah. And left her there. She could be on either side of the street. That's true. This either side of the street piece is really important. And I'm obviously a journalist, not a detective, so take this for what it's worth. But when I think about that night... And again, we are looking at this as if Terry's story is 100% true and she saw Tiffany Sessions and Paul Rolls that night. And we're working off of a theory that Paul could have killed and buried Tiffany out there. So looking at it like that, it only makes sense to me that Tiffany would be buried on the northwest side of the road, what would have been Terry's left that night. I picture it like a triangle. Paul ran into the woods. So his starting point is corner A, okay? And Tiffany ran into the road and in front of Terry's car, so that's corner B. And if I'm Tiffany, there is no way I'm running back to the southeast side of the road with my kidnapper and his truck. Just because Terry kept going doesn't mean I'm just going to give up and go back. So if Tiffany was fighting enough to run that night, she kept running. And I have to think that that was as fast and as far away from the truck and Paul as possible. So to me, it only makes sense that she would at least run to the other side of the road and then down the road in one direction or the other as fast as she could. Paul would have then had to catch her 
and wherever he finally got to her is C, the final corner of the triangle. Since we think Paul usually left his victims close to where he killed them, I'd think that Tiffany would be very close to wherever that C point is. Otherwise, he'd have had to drag her kicking and screaming all the way back to his truck, or he would have had to kill her at C and drag a body back to the other side of the road, and neither one of those options makes sense to me. This is probably the piece of the case that I've made Detective Allen talk through the most, and we don't necessarily disagree on it, but he is much more open to the idea that Paul could have buried Tiffany on what would have been the right-hand side of the road than I am. But it really didn't matter either way, because like we've talked about, when I started working on this podcast in 2018, most everyone felt at peace with where the case stood. The sheriff's office had finally named Paul as Tiffany's probable killer, they'd searched for her in a likely location in 2014, and no one was really interested in starting the process all over again just because one woman had come forward and taken them to a forest. There just wasn't enough information to justify another search. What are the odds, do you think? Do you believe it? Do you think it was Tiffany? I don't. But if we have her search all this, it goes back for like 10,000 acres. I don't know how we would do it. I know that bite was hard to hear. Detective Allen said, I don't know. But if we ever searched all of this, it goes back for like 10,000 acres. I don't know how we'd do it. But I want to fast forward about a year to this past August when I woke up to a really surprising email from Detective Allen because in it, he told me he was reopening a case I thought was closed for good. They're going to look for Tiffany. They are going to look for Tiffany? Oh, they win. I flew down to Florida the next week. Welcome to Tampa, ladies and gentlemen. Rented a car and drove up to Gainesville to talk to him. In his email, he told me they were putting together another massive search for Tiffany Sessions. And once again, it was a huge secret. And I remember being pretty shocked any of it was happening because it seemed to me like the case had gone from comfortably closed to a possible search almost out of nowhere. And I didn't know yet what all could have changed. All I knew for sure was that they were starting a brand new search for Tiffany for the first time in six years, and Detective Allen had told me they were going to do it right where Terry Williams said she almost ran a girl over 31 years ago. So uh, let's start there. Okay. Um, a year ago, we started, and we talked about Tiffany, and you were kind of like, I'm really happy with where everything sits. Something would have to happen for a search. Well... I would say at that stage, I was probably in the same boat as Pat Sessions on this case, that we finally found some answers, you know, for the Sessions family. We didn't find her remains because we all know it's a needle in a haystack. And we did excavate the most probable area where uh, he would have left the body based upon the information we had back then. But since then... uh, There ended up being a few combined pieces here that opened this case back up. The first was, of course, Terry. But remember, one possible witness wasn't enough to dig up a forest. They needed more pieces to fit together first. And as it turns out, one of the other pieces came from Laura, Paul Roll's only known survivor. You heard her tell her own story in episode four. She was the 15-year-old who'd escaped after Paul kidnapped her in 94. When we went back and rechecked her narrative and compared that against Paul Roll's narrative, there was a discrepancy. And the discrepancy was where they stopped, how often they stopped. And if they stopped for an extended period of time at the area where we excavated, or if they stopped on another location 
on their way to Jacksonville. Remember how Paul and Laura had stopped after going through the Steak and Shake drive through Laura had been blindfolded, but she knew they'd turned off maybe a highway onto that bumpy road with trees hitting the windows. And when they got out of the truck, they were in the middle of the woods. Well, Detective Allen had originally thought that stop had been where Beth Foster's body was found, in that wooded area off of Williston Road where they dug for Tiffany in 2014. He'd been thinking that could have been Paul's go-to spot to take all of his victims. But after going over Paul and Laura's statements again, he thinks the stop in the woods with Laura could have been where Terry says she saw Tiffany. It is my opinion at this point, they stopped for an extended period of time on a country road with a lot of trees on their way to Jacksonville. To do another search, though, You've got to have some level of belief that she could really be there. Yes. I believe Paul Rolls stopped with Laura one more time after going to the Steak and Shake, and it was not at the area that we excavated. I believe it was somewhere between Gainesville and Jacksonville on kind of a backcountry road. And therefore, Terry Williams' affidavit has particular significance now. And speaking of somewhere between Gainesville and Jacksonville on a backcountry road, you might remember Paul told Laura when they stopped in the woods that they were about an hour from where they were going, which of course ended up being Paul's apartment in Jacksonville. Well, this wooded area where Terry saw the truck that night, it's about an hour away from Jacksonville. Detective Allen has talked with Laura about this stop in the woods several times and whether or not it could have been at this new location. And after going back over her story and writing down what she could still remember, she told the detective she thinks it could have been the same place. When she realized that that could have been the area, that was just a home to ball game to me. Then now we have two reasons to go back here. And that's one of the main reasons we're doing it. So I'm not allowed to tell you where here is. The sheriff's office asked me to keep the location of the new search a secret for now. So let's just call it the spot. What I can tell you is that this new search of the spot is based almost entirely off of Terry's account of what happened to her back in 1989. It's right where she told us she almost ran over the girl running out into the road. And you already know that that was on a quiet back road that leads out of Gainesville, one that some people use to get to Jacksonville. And so that makes it, in hindsight, pretty easy to make a possible connection between Laura's case and the spot, because Paul Rolls was living in Jacksonville at the time of her abduction. And so it would make sense that he knew a back road to get to Jacksonville, that he could be comfortable out in those woods, and that he would know almost no one was ever out there. So maybe he took that road to get out of town with Laura. But I couldn't figure out why he would have taken Tiffany out to the spot in 1989 when he'd been living in Gainesville less than a year and wouldn't move to Jacksonville for several more years. So why would he go out that way with her and how would he even know it was there? It didn't make any sense to me until I was going through my files again and I found one tiny note in Paul's parole file that I'd missed a thousand times. 9688 is the date. Okay, 9688. Has to work in jacks at times. In September of 88, five months before Tiffany Sessions went missing, Paul's parole officer wrote, Has to work in jacks at times, will call when he goes out of town. 
As a reminder, Paul was working for a company called Crom Equipment Rentals at the time, which delivered and set up scaffolding all over Florida. And according to his parole records, Paul was driving to Jacksonville for Crom as early as 1988. So don't you think that if that's the case, that leans more into being even more probable that he would have gone that way? Yes, and since County Road 225 is kind of a shortcut to Jacksonville because you avoid that speed trap in Waldo, that is highly probable that he would have known about County Road 225. And if he's in a company truck, he might take time to explore other areas. So yeah, that was good information. In that same note in his parole file, the officer wrote that Paul said he would call when he had to go out of town for work. But the officer told Paul he didn't need to call for that. He was free to leave town for work now. And that means we have no records of where Paul would have been driving or when he might have gone up that way. But because of the entry from 88, we know it is entirely possible that Paul would have been using that back road and driving right by the spot for quite some time before Terry Williams saw a man who drove a red truck running into the woods on February 10th, 1989. I busted out into tears crying yesterday, coming home. I check in on Terry every now and then, and the news that her tip has turned into this massive search has hit her pretty hard. You know when you're supposed to make a right decision, and that's what I thought I was doing, yet I saw another young girl. And what was I supposed to do, help her or not help her? And, and I didn't help. I ran because I was afraid. But I thought it was set up. I honestly thought they were trying to stop me so that they could grab me. But that's when I thought, no, that girl wasn't trying to grab me. There was something else. Something else. Terry still drives to the spot. And she's even gotten out of her truck to look around. She still can't let go of that night. Because she's positive it was Tiffany. And she's praying Tiffany is still close to where she left her. I hope that if all these resources are spent here, that we find her here. Not on, I don't want to know that she, it was her for my sake, you know, because I'll have to think about that all the time, and I still do. But then to know it really was her, that's going to break me. You know what I'm saying? It's really going to break me. That I want them to be done with this. They need that. And I want her found. I want, I want to know that this is it. I want Kevin to find her, and I hope to God that if she's here, that we find her. Because it's been 31 years. 31 years is crazy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We're going to find her. I hope we find her. Hillary Sessions, Tiffany's mom, is also really hopeful that this is it. There are just too many things that are pointing in that direction. When I first interviewed her about a year ago, we had talked about the spot and how Terry had come forward with a new place for them to look. Hillary had been asking for a new search of that spot unsuccessfully for a few years. So when the sheriff's office decided to go for it, I called Hillary to see how she was handling the news. How are you feeling? I am guardedly anxious. I've been down this road a few times before, and I can't get too excited, but I can't not be excited, if you know what I mean. One of the big things that I want to do is give Tippy a Christian burial. And, you know, there is no way that if there's a possibility that this site does have her remains, that I could let it just go. 
I would like this to be it, but I don't know. I found out there's a ton of work that goes into a ground search, and deciding to do the search is the smallest thing on that list. The preparation, getting plans together, involving other agencies, going over ops, rounding up dogs, it takes months. And while Detective Allen was heading all of that up, I started thinking about the vastness of this search. There are thousands of acres of woods out there, and when you're basing a search off of one possible sighting from one person in 1989, how do you decide where to start and where to stop? With the thousands and thousands of tips that would have come in back then, have you thought about cross-checking against Terry to see if there were other people who saw something weird in that area? I've never been able to fully buy into the idea that no one saw anything. I guess it's possible, but I've always wondered if there are maybe people who did see something and either didn't come forward like Terry or did come forward and their tip got missed or it wasn't found credible. Maybe their story didn't fit law enforcement's theories back then because of the location or some other details. And remember, no one was looking at Paul Rolls in 1989, but what if someone had called about him? This connection between Paul Rolls, The Spot, and Tiffany Sessions is still pretty new, and I think it could be really important to take that new information and compare it to the old, original, forgotten details, if they still exist. Do you ever go back and look at the original tips that came in in 89? No, we had nothing to do with the tips back in the day. I think it was a pretty unsophisticated police department at that point, and I know Pat said he actually bought the sheriff's office a fax machine. So I think the tip line that was set up in close proximity to the police report being made in 1989 was owned and operated and controlled by the victim's father. Okay. I just wonder if it might be, what if somebody else saw something? No, that's a good point. I have not gone back and look, taken a look at all those tips. Yeah, you never know. Well, I just think it was so focused back then, closer to where she lived and Williston Road. And maybe it's not, I saw Tiffany Sessions. Maybe it's, there was some weird guy running across the road. Mm-hmm. If you can cross point, basically. If someone besides Terry had seen something way out there by the spot on that Friday night and called it in as a tip, and if we could now find that tip, it could help narrow down this new search. Terry had given us a point to start, where she'd seen this red truck, a tall man running into the woods, and a petite girl running out into the road. We could drive to that point right now, but we don't know what happened after Terry drove off where those two ended up. So what if someone else saw the two that night, fighting further down the road, or a man carrying a shovel, or even just someone on one side of the road or the other? If we could find even one more tip, law enforcement could put it against Terry's and have a better idea of where to start looking out there. I struggle thinking about it a lot with which side of the road she would be on. She was running, Terry almost hit her. Mm-hmm. I would think she would keep running away from Paul. She wouldn't voluntarily run back right. to the east side. She would have to be taken back. And I wonder if he would have gone to that trouble. As opposed to leaving her on the surface on the other side of the street? Or taking her into the woods on that side of the street. Mm-hmm. You know, just to be easier to not have to take True. her. She was clearly fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you had to subdue her on that side of the road, would he have gone to the trouble to drag her back however far? I would think he would have dragged her back to where he had the shovel and he had the convenience if he wanted to bury her there. He'd have all of his equipment and whatever he would need. Or if he wanted to throw her back in the car and bring her someplace else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. If if he dragged her out there, but I think he would have to go back to get a shovel unless he was smart enough to let her run and go to his truck and get the shovel and then run her down. But I, I don't think he would have let, lost visual. Or, you know? or just went and killed her and then went and got his stuff. Yeah, brought her back. Yeah, brought the equipment back. That's true. That's what I mean. I wonder, what if there's a tip? If someone saw a man with a shovel or, you know... Back in episode two, we talked about how Patrick Sessions, Tiffany's dad, had started a 1-800-TIP line shortly after Tiffany disappeared. He'd staffed it with employees from Arvida, the company he worked for, and they handled all of those tips from Miami. Pat would have his PI, Wayne Black, run some of them down. Some were obviously fake, and some would get sent up to Gainesville for the Alachua County Sheriff's Office to look into. But no one from the sheriff's office ever got a hold of that whole collection of tips until Detective Allen came on board. I did pick up all those leads from Pat eventually. It was like two boxes of them, but they're all like dot matrix computer generated stuff. If you need anybody to go through tips for you, I'm happy to do it. Well, I think we might go back and open up a box right now. Okay. Let's see if our evidence is available. Okay. We'll just go back and open up one of those boxes to see what we're talking about. Cool. Detective Allen and I walked through the sheriff's office down to the evidence room. May we come in? Yes. And the evidence custodian showed us the first book of original tips from Pat's 1989 hotline. It was the first of five three-inch notebooks with one tip per page and notes about who took each call and what happened with each tip. When was the last time someone looked at these? I don't know. Our agency has never... Uh, to my knowledge. Detective Allen decided he'd let me go through all of the tips from 1989, and we agreed it needed to be done before they searched the spot, just in case there was something in there that could help their team. He also agreed to let me in on that search that was set to take place around the beginning of 2020. Since I'd been around for the last search in 2014, I was picturing this new one to look something like that. A couple football fields worth of excavated woods with some heavy construction equipment digging up the dirt. But while that 2014 search had been huge, it was nothing compared to what was coming. Oh my gosh. I can't believe how much is gone. Good, how are you? We're running out there real soon. Okay. Matter of fact, we might just go right out. Sure. On the next episode of Shallow Graves. What are you guys going to be looking for? Well, obviously looking for any skeletal remains. Portions of the skull would be left. I'm taking you inside the current search for Tiffany Sessions. The tips the theories, and the plans to finally bring her home. I hope you find her this time. I do too.
I think the biggest thing I hope you got out of this episode was that someone had a piece of information that she held on to for decades, thinking that it wasn't right or didn't matter, but when she finally came forward, it ended up being incredibly important. And law enforcement says that kind of thing happens all the time. So if you have a tip about this case or any other, even if you think you've reported it the right way in the past, please come forward and call. You just never know. To get a tip to Detective Kevin Allen at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office, call 352-384-3323. And I really want to hear from you now that you've heard Terry's story. What do you think about what happened to her and the spot? I'm going to do a question and answer episode soon, so call my voicemail box and leave me your thoughts and questions about anything from the case. The number is 352-559-5007. You can also reach me through Instagram or Facebook or shoot me an email at shallowgravespodcast at gmail.com. And thank you, thank you, thank you to Detective Kevin Allen. I don't know that I would have even done this podcast without your support, and I appreciate you being such an open book in the hopes of finding Tiffany. And thank you as always to Jessica McGill, who not only gives me my most valued opinion, but always catches at least one mistake before we publish. Music for this podcast is by Mark at Lineout Studio. Music editing and audio restoration is by Aston Lopez.